Hello, you're listening to the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. We're your hosts, Helen McLean and Jan McIntosh-Brown. Here, we aim to look at all aspects of brain injury, from the research to the rehabilitation, and always through the lens of speech and language therapy. Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. I'm Jan McIntosh-Brown. And I'm Helen McLean. And tonight we're delighted to have uh, Douglas Gentleman as our guest. Douglas is a consultant neurosurgeon who has a wealth of experience in working with people with brain injuries and their families, as well as supporting local community organisations. So... We're delighted that Douglas has given us some time to come and talk with us today. And Douglas, it would be really great for you to introduce yourself and tell us more about you. Sure. Thank you very much indeed. Um, You said just now that I'm a neurosurgeon, and certainly that is my background, but my professional journey is a a bit unusual because I trained in neurosurgery in Glasgow and came to Dundee in the early 90s as a consultant um, but my, my main interest in neurosurgery was always patients with head injury. Um, head injury was a big thing in the Glasgow Neurosurgical Unit. We had some of the biggest names in the world in the head injury field working there, and it was a great place to, to be and to learn from them. Um, and when I came to Dundee, I wanted to try and improve services for people who'd had head injuries. Often the acute care was excellent, And then after that, there really wasn't all that much. Now, in fact, in Dundee, the consultants who were there already had set up a a very uh, mini rehabilitation service, if you like, within the neurosurgery ward. And they were very pleased that somebody who was interested in head injury was actually joining them and could, as it were, provide the medical leadership to that team. So that's what I did. And to cut a long story short, we set up a a head injury clinic and then we were asked to find some beds and I found a ward that nobody was using for anything else and uh, it was six beds or six commissioned beds at that time with some nurses and we eventually moved up to 16 beds Um, and I became eventually a full-time consultant in um, brain injury rehabilitation medicine which is a a slightly odd title but that's basically what I did Um, and we had a team of about 40 professionals half often nurses and the rest often therapists psychologists dietitian and so on and we worked very well together um, and we admitted anything up to 50 or 60 patients a year with really quite severe brain injuries in many cases some of them head injuries some of them strokes some often ruptured aneurysms uh, anything that could cause a brain injury um, in, a, in a younger adult was uh, a patient that we would consider taking if we felt we could help them. And we got nearly all of them home and we continued to follow them up afterwards, which was also a, a bit unusual, if you like, in those days. Um, and we had clinics for follow up. We uh, plugged into local teams um, some of the members of the local teams would come to the clinic and it was very much a three dimensional service, which was there to help the patient and the patient's family move on from the devastating impact or potentially devastating impact of a brain injury and try and get um, their lives back or at least a life that they regarded as as very rewarding. And like everything else in clinical work, some some, got better um, more quickly than others and made more complete recoveries, uh, but there were some real um, 
triumphs for, is probably too uh, not too strong a word for some of them uh, in terms of getting them home and getting them back to outcomes that nobody could possibly have dared to expect. So that, that's what I did, and I retired from clinical work in 2017. Um, I stayed around to help do some developmental work for a couple of years after that. And then as I was <laughs> getting on, as we say, uh, it was time to retire. But I've, I've still kept an interest uh, throughout the time of the pandemic in problems um, of organizing brain injury services and basically thinking about how the gaps might be filled. It's all about, uh, you know, mind the gap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a wealth of experience, Douglas, and I guess it's quite topical, isn't it? The pandemic and the impact it's had on services for everybody, but particularly for people in brain injuries, with brain injuries. Have you seen any sort of differences? What What's happening, do you think? Uh, absolutely. Um, and quite a number of people up and down the country have seen differences as well. And, and some of them have put uh, pen to paper, as it were. Okay. and characterised the, the, the problems. One, one of the most obvious things, um, and we kind of always knew this, but it still hurt when it happened, was that brain injury rehabilitation was, was nobody's priority, um, if I'm honest, and in, in terms of health service management and planners and so on. Um, and as soon as the pandemic hit, uh, people's priorities were completely focused on, quite understandably focused on uh, keeping as many people alive as possible and uh, making sure that the hospitals were as safe as they could be, reducing the risk of the virus being transmitted in hospitals, expanding intensive care facilities and so on. And basically, with a few exceptions like maternity care and some children's services and time critical cancer services and acute medical and surgical emergencies, which carried on much as before, but with the exception of that, things uh, were put into the deep freeze for a while. If it could wait, it did wait. And most brain injury rehabilitation was reckoned to be the kind of stuff that could wait. Um, and there were other changes which varied from unit to unit. In the unit which I'd worked in, there were two consultants still working um, when I um, uh, retired. And at the start of the pandemic, both of them moved away. And it was impossible, literally impossible, to get a replacement despite the effort. So um, another specialty took over the beds and took over the staff and changed a bit the, the kind of patient population uh, that were admitted. It was mostly strokes who came in in future, uh, you know, at that time, rather than um, head injured patients. So there were, there were a lot of changes, um, some of which, um, you know, one looked in on the out, from the outside and, and, and regretted a bit. Um, but fortunately, the, the therapy team and the, the experienced nurses and the psychologists were still there and still trying to work to get these patients uh, back home, the ones with rehabilitation potential. So um, it was a bit of what had happened before and a bit of something that was rather different. Um, just with you saying about people who could wait, Douglas, I know certainly in our um, neck of the woods, that we have had a few patients. We are, we are entirely a community service at the moment, yes. but I can think when, when COVID hit, our service was largely um, disbanded and we were um, yes. kind of re-employed elsewhere within kind of um, acute services and such to, uh -huh. you know, because priorities have changed. Uh -huh. And I can just think we've had a few people over recent months who have been re-referred to our service, who had mm -hmm. maybe been had their brain injury right at the peak of COVID yes. um, but because we were there as a service at that time they didn't get the input that really ideally they should have got yeah. and here we are to 
two plus years down the line, they're still having so many difficulties. Yeah. And we are well, finding well, it really that, That's exactly right, because um, anecdotally, this seems to have happened up and down the country. Community teams were just disbanded and redeployed to do other things which were more focused, if you like, on, on COVID-related things. Now, it takes no time at all to dismantle a, a team, a specialist team, whether it's in the hospital or in the community, but it takes a long time to build it up again and pull the people back in or recruit new ones and get them working together and so on. And, and that's the problem. It takes much longer to build than to demolish. And we're seeing the impact on patients who didn't get the help that they needed at yeah. the time. And they've well, that's right. Just had I, to I, I think in a sense, the, the, the people who still get referred for treatment, even if the treatment looks a bit less and a bit more rushed than it used to, they're the lucky ones because at least they've been flagged up as requiring rehabilitation. We know about them. The ones who I think are really disadvantaged are the ones who don't get referred and you don't know about them, obviously. You can't know about them until somebody makes a referral and you realize that there's a problem here that your team can help with. Um, now, there was always a bit of that. There were always people that you saw at a clinic and you thought, why weren't they referred initially? Um, and there are all sorts of reasons for that. But um, that used to happen a bit. I suspect it'll happen an awful lot more. And it's difficult to know what to do about that. You can send out a message saying, if you've got people with a brain injury that you think should have been referred to rehab, you know, please refer them in, even if it's a bit later than, than, than ideal. But how many people are going to do that? Because everybody out there seems to be you know, really busy and focused on whatever priorities they, they see as the thing that they should focus on. Firefighting now, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, and, and one of the difficulties is of, of, using a kind of military analogy, if you like. I've always said that the, the people who are stretcher cases are the ones who are most likely to be flagged up as having had something serious happen to them and be referred on to rehabilitation. The walking wounded are assumed that they'll, it's assumed that they're going to get better. And if you've got lots and lots of physical difficulties in particular, people won't miss that. If you've got very few physical difficulties, then even if your cognitive function and your psychological function are all over the place, there's a real risk that that's going to be overlooked by people who are not focused in on these things because it's not their special area and they'll just be discharged back into the community or go home or refer back to the GP and they're lost. And you'll get a few of them back eventually because somebody thinks, hang on a minute, they should get rehab. I'll write a letter or send an email. Um, but lots of them will never do that and they'll suffer in silence along with their families. Can I just jump in and um, mention a situation that Helen was sharing with me uh, where, Helen, you're probably better to describe it, about people uh, waiting and waiting and waiting before seeking support because they think, oh, the hospitals are too busy, the doctors yeah. are too busy. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I, I'm thinking of a kind of couple of blanket scenarios. I can think of a few cases we've had where maybe someone's um, felt a bit unwell and it turns out they've maybe bumped their heads, you know, two or three weeks before and then they've eventually ended up in hospital with a chronic subdural bleed and needed surgery and needed lots of rehab um, and the, the impact of that has been, been huge. And I'm also thinking just the impact of COVID and people having lots of other health issues that maybe um, weren't kind of managed as well. And I'm thinking things like, for example, high blood pressure, things that we know can be um, mitigating factors. And for example, um, 
an aneurysm or something like that and people have been kind of just they've been under lots of stress they've maybe not been looking after themselves as well through the pandemic um and because certainly I, I feel like our service has had a real upsurge in the number of patients coming through with quite complex injuries you know um, and I've had lots of other health issues going on um and I just I, I don't know Douglas if you have have any kind of comments around either of those factors around people waiting longer um or not seeking kind of help at an earlier stage for something that maybe seems um, yeah. you know it's a bit more readily manageable from a medical point of view I, I think there's a lot of evidence building up now that that is exactly what has happened. People have been reluctant to bother their GP or go to the hospital or have not been able to get an appointment easily and they've given up. And something that was to them, uh, you know, a, a bit of a nuisance, but nothing more than that at that stage, was allowed to grow and grow. And by the time that they thought, I really do need to seek some help for this, then it was a much bigger problem than it would have been if it had been um, looked at um, at the start. And you hear about this particularly, I think, in terms of cancer cases, um, because people mm -hmm. have presented much later with cancers, um, and as a result, it's far more um, complex and far more problematic to give them uh, treatment which will result in, in a cure or an improvement in their symptoms. Um, but it's also true, I'm sure you used hypertension as an example, I'm sure that's right. And lots of people will not have had blood pressure checked regularly, and as a result, may have had cardiac or um, cerebrovascular problems, um, which have brought them to hospital as an emergency, which could have been avoided. And I think that's an inevitable consequence of allowing the population to believe that the hospitals are extremely busy with COVID and that would they mind just waiting a little bit longer, please. And that is, I'm afraid, the message that came out from the centre. Um, it may not have been the message that was intended, but I think that was the message that was received. Douglas, um, yeah. I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, Bing, I'm sure it's something that, you know, the Brain Injury Network Group. Oh, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. And the, there was a representative there from Stroke, um, Stroke Association Scotland. Yes. And she was, she was asking people, you know, community services, how, you know, if we were getting referrals for people for rehab who had um, had strokes. And she was reporting that the incidence for stroke was increasing, yet yes. the referral rate for rehab had significantly yes. decreased. Yes, yes. Okay. I, th I think that has the ring of truth, to, to be quite honest with you. Um, and I think it's just another example of how problems have been happening, illnesses have been happening all through the pandemic. That's not changed. But the number of people who've been sent for getting specialist help, such as rehabilitation, um, has gone down. And as a result, often uh, when they do turn up uh, and get seen, they're far more advanced and have far more serious problems than would have been the case otherwise. Yeah. And so, Douglas, I realise this is maybe not exactly your remit, but since we're on the subject of people maybe not looking after themselves as well, mm -hmm. yeah. do you have some um, sage advice perhaps on if people mm -hmm. are listening to this and think, I need to make some changes? What, what would you kind of put as your headlines, perhaps over your years of experience, you've seen maybe some things that have stuck out that like if people could just do this, yeah. that, that would help them look after themselves a bit better and reduce the risks of hemorrhages, of, you know, all these kind of pre-morbid factors that we hear about. 
I think particularly when we get to a certain stage in life, which I'm not going to try and define, but we all know what we're talking about, um, these risks grow. Um, and the, the obvious risks include things like allowing your blood pressure to creep up without doing something about it. You can buy these blood pressure monitors or you can um, get access to them in a variety of ways and get your blood pressure checked. And if it's too high, it's actually quite easy to um, get to treatment and to bring it back down. Um, eating habits are important. When we were all told to lock ourselves away and not come out except for a bit of exercise, a lot of people did lock themselves away and didn't bother coming out for the exercise. I mean, I've got a dog that needs three walks a day, so that helped me to get exercise. Uh, exercise in fresh air is good psychologically as well as physically, and it helps to keep blood pressure down. Um, we should try and do a bit more active walking, active uh, transport rather than just you know sitting in a car. Um, we should keep our minds busy. Um, we should watch what we eat and not um, drink uh, too much alcohol. We should we should above all not smoke cigarettes or at least cut down if we if we already smoke. And all these things, which are not rocket science and which have been around for a long time as good ideas, um, are even more important at a time when it's a bit more tricky to get. Um, professional, you know, medical or clinical help for, for problems you have. And that helps, I think, in, in overall, maintaining overall good general health. And the mental health aspect of this is really important too, because if you don't keep your mind busy, then your body won't be busy and you'll end up, um, you know, basically slobbing out in front of the TV and eating lots of takeaway food. Um, and I think um, keeping your mind active is just as important as keeping your body active in terms of staving off the effects of um, a poor lifestyle and, and and getting older. And I think probably touching on what we've been talking about is also being aware of early warning signs, yes. which I would think, just thinking off the top of my head, um, headache, nausea, yeah. fatigue, yeah. that persists maybe over... Yeah. I think one of the things we need to remember is that a lot of what GPs are asked to see in consultations, whether it's a remote consultation or face-to-face, -face, doesn't come with a label attached to it. The patient doesn't say, I've got such and such a syndrome. The patient says, I'm tired all the time. I've got a sore head and I just don't feel I've got any energy. And that's where the conversation can start. And the GP's skill, of course, is through knowing that patient and having the notes in front of them, uh, getting a few more answers to questions and then working out what the kind of top three possibilities are here. And then maybe doing some tests to find out, you know, which of them is actually the right answer. Um, and a lot of what they'll end up doing is giving reassurance and advice rather than prescribing fancy drugs. Now, um, people can't really be expected to be their own GP, I don't think. Um, but they, they can perhaps try and follow a lifestyle which is more likely to um, keep them healthy rather than be unhealthy. We all get a headache from time to time, just to take that one as, as a, a simple example. And headaches usually go away. And if they go away, that's fine. If they don't go away or they're getting worse, that's a bit unusual for most people. And that probably deserves a, a, a bit more thought. And somebody should say, well, I wonder what your blood pressure is like. And I must, must look at the, the, the eye to make sure there's no pressure behind it um, and so on. And um, the, there's ways in which simple um, tests, simple assessments can help people to know whether they have in fact got something that's going to require you know, a bit more investigation in order to rule out a serious diagnosis or 
uh, a bit of treatment to uh, deal with the problem. For example, simple antihypertensive therapy. Many people take one antihypertensive tablet a day in order to keep the blood pressure within normal limits. That's a great way to protect yourself um, for the future. It doesn't mean that everyone who has a headache needs to go and see their GP and, and get checked out. But it does mean that if you've got a persisting problem or a problem that seems to be getting worse, you shouldn't hesitate to go and see your GP and get it checked out, I think. And it's maybe worth mentioning, is it, that um, if people experience the, the so-called thunderclap headache that's yes. kind of associated with a ruptured aneurysm, that's a very sudden, incredibly yeah. painful yeah. headache, isn't it? Yeah. So that's, that's something else altogether. You wouldn't be seeing your GP, that would be a 999. <laughs> Um, absolutely, absolutely. That's right. And it, it's important to say, I think, that not every sudden severe headache turns out to be a, a ruptured aneurysm, fortunately. Um, mm. But if you get something that's sudden, that's worse than anything you've ever had before, you certainly need to treat that very seriously and get very rapid um, help for it. And as you quite rightly say, that would be a trip to hospital rather than uh, an appointment with your GP in a few days. Um, and it's important to do that because, of course, if you have one bleed from an aneurysm, you're almost certain to get another one within a matter of hours or days or a few weeks at the most. And it could be a lot worse the second time. So it's important to get in there so that um, if it is an aneurysm, it can be treated and the problem can then be solved before the second bleed actually happens. And one last comment I have to make about this kind of idea of preventative yes. health care is with you saying about hypertension and um, worth acknowledging people should see their optician regularly because I've yes. had a few patients that that's yes. how um, the, the issue has been first noted. They've been, they've just had a routine eye test yes. and the optician said, there's there's something going on there. You yes. need to see a doctor right now. And that and could you, could you explain, I'm sure you could explain much better than I could what that would be that an optician is seeing. Well, an optician will obviously look at the back of the eye and will see perhaps some pressure at the back of the eye. That's called papilledema, and that simply reflects that there's increased pressure in the brain. Um, and the optician may also see evidence of other serious conditions, for example, evidence of diabetes affecting the eye. The patient may not even know that they are diabetic or may see evidence of uh, high blood pressure in the form of uh, narrowing and constriction of some of the little vessels at the back of the eye. And the optician may not be absolutely sure which of these conditions uh, they're looking at, but they, they'll know that any, if it's any of these, then a doctor should be assessing this patient and doing some more tests and if necessary, starting some treatment. Thank you. That's a yeah, much better explanation than I could ever, oh, ever no, manage. Thank I'm you. Really not sure <laughs> it is. I, I thought we might just change track a little bit, but I think it is related um, because I wonder about I do hear a lot of talk, Douglas, about the the major trauma teams and yes. and and how it's it's potentially some of our people are being missed because you know that they're not going into the, this this pathway because they don't they don't have a, a second system involved. They they may just have the brain injury, but they don't have a broken bone or a skin mm -hmm. condition or something. Yeah. So they're not getting picked up in that pathway. I think it'll probably vary a bit from place to place, to be honest. Okay. Um, okay. I, I, I think that you, you can have, you know, um, a, a brain injury and um, no other um, major injuries, but you still have quite a substantial problem. Um, or conversely, you can have a few fractures 
and your brain is fine um, and you've still got a, a major problem. So I, I think the, the exact type of injury you've got is probably less important than the fact that it's um, affecting your function um, and will require a, a period of time uh, for recovery. Uh, and it'll obviously differ between uh, an isolated brain injury and uh, multi-system fractures um, as to whether the pathway you go down is a brain injury rehabilitation service or a physiotherapy-led community rehabilitation service designed to get you back on your feet and uh, get use of your, your arms and legs again. Um, I, I think one of the things that is likely to be happening at the moment, and I don't have any real figures for this, but it, it's instinctively what will be happening is that people are being sent home from hospital um, much earlier than they would have been before. And they're probably not getting the optimal dose of rehabilitation because hospitals obviously have more rehabilitation professionals. They can do intensive work for a period of days or weeks, depending on what the patient needs. At home in the community, it's maybe going to be a, a visit uh, once a week for half an hour from a physiotherapist. Uh, there may not be an occupational therapist who's available. Uh, it may be a slow referral process if you want the patient to be seen by a neuropsychologist because you've got concerns uh, about you know, the cognitive function or a psychological state. And everything seems to happen far more slowly out in the community. It always has done, um, which is no... Um, no fault of the people working in the community, but if they're swamped by a large number of people who in the old days, as it were, would have been kept in hospital until they were ready to go home, but are now being punted home to get them out of hospital, to clean up the bed or to reduce the risk of them getting COVID, then that's a different ballgame. And if the community teams have already been depleted by what happened at the start of the pandemic, then it's hard to see how they can do anything other than try and do um, the most they can for a, a number of the people that they get referred, which inevitably means that some people will, will lose out on getting um, what they need in order to recover from what has happened to them. And when, when the major trauma uh, network was set up, and I, I was involved in doing that, um, and I sort of led the rehabilitation end of that when the one in Tayside was set up, um, everyone, but everyone recognized that the key to all this was to make sure that there were enough rehabilitation professionals and there was a good rehabilitation program for each person. It wasn't about the acute care. That was already pretty fine. It was what happened subsequently that mattered. And I was in a meeting once where there were all sorts of orthopedic surgeons and a &E consultants and intensivists and so on. And a guy from the military rehabilitation center in England um, basically explained how they did rehabilitation for um, military personnel who'd been injured or, or wounded. And he said, it's all about rehabilitation. You know, that's where the resources need to be put in. And you could suddenly see the penny drop around the room as all these acute doctors in acute specialties uh, suddenly thought, yes, of course, that's what we need. We need more rehabilitation. Unfortunately, within a year of that, the pandemic struck and rehabilitation ceased to be the, the top priority of, of, of people. But it's still needed uh, and in larger amounts than we're able to, to offer at the moment if we're going to make an impact on um, helping people who've had major trauma or other major illnesses. And just to go on for a minute, there's one other area, of course, which has uh, started to become important as a result of the pandemic, and that is people with long COVID. 
You know, people with long COVID can be very disabled indeed with a whole variety of respiratory and neurological and cardiac problems. They, funnily enough, need rehabilitation as well. So that's another patient population that's going to be factored into the workload. But I've yet to see somebody really come up with a, a master plan that says, right, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to get the extra people. This is the structure that we're going to need to put in place. But, you know, as sure as nightfall is day, that is going to have to happen if we're going to be able to chip away at this large volume of people who are going to need rehabilitation for whatever it is that's brought them um, to the hospital in the first place. If I can, if I can just uh, blow your services trumpet, Helen, I feel like what Douglas said about that the major trauma pathway wasn't really about acute care, but the focus was on rehab. I feel like your service is trying to do that. They're trying to combine the sort of, you know, acute hospital pathway with then follow on through your team into the community. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. So um, the service that I'm in in, in Lanarkshire, um, we've been running as a community service for 10 years and this year we'll be getting a, a an inpatient unit Um Sounds a little bit like what you first set up, um, Douglas, when you you went to Tayside, because yeah. we've we've never had um, a, a neuro-specific inpatient unit within Lanarkshire. Right. It's all always been, you know, um, you know privately um, funded places elsewhere and things. Um, so it's an exciting time for us because we're hoping that we can create that continuum of care. Um, and I think I'm really lucky in that the team. That I am in, and I've had patients say this to me, to me who've maybe had friends um, in another area who have had brain injuries, and um, they say also oh, they'll not get the same kind of follow up as I get from you guys because we are an interdisciplinary team. There's not one referral to physio, one to speech and language, one to, to neuropsychology. We're all one team, um, so waiting lists are much generally much shorter, and we all kind of collaborate much more and um, so we are really lucky with the setup that we have um, and, and I'm fully aware that not everywhere has that and I'm not saying that we're perfect by any means you know there's always work to be done to, to improve but I will say Douglas just hearing you speak it's so it's so heartening to hear someone of your background as a rehabilitation consultant and, and neurosurgeon to, to really be stressing the importance of rehabilitation and you clearly really value the input that other therapy staff and psychologists etc can can add um, and I think that taps into what Jan and I have spoken about a lot in the podcast which is about rehabilitation and brain injury it's a chronic condition and it's not just about that one-off moment of injury happening there's there's months potentially years of impact that comes after it and Hopefully, as a re as rehabilitationists, yeah. we can help people along that. So it's great to hear you speak about that. Yeah. So it's definitely a long term neurological condition, and that that's the way I would put it. And a, a, a lot of neurological conditions are very much for the long term, and brain injury is up there with them. So, and I wondered as well. So I'm aware of I'm aware of time, but. Jumping back to something you said quite early on about becoming a rehabilitation consultant. Yes. In my 
I am very limited experience knowing that we've been kind of looking to try and get one to join us in Lanarkshire um, and I think we have got one now um, if I'm allowed to say that and put that out there um, it, they seem to be quite hard to come by Douglas yeah. <laughs> is that something that, what, yeah. what, what can we do to help take people wanting to come we have consultants you're absolutely right it's, it's, a, it's quite a small specialty and I've always found it quite surprising because it's a very flexible specialty in the sense that um, you can develop interests in a particular area, whether it's brain injury or amputee medicine or spinal cord injury or community rehabilitation for people with a variety of disorders. It's also the kind of thing which doesn't have a lot of uh, emergency or on-call work associated with it. So it's not physically demanding in the way that a lot of acute surgical and medical work is. Um, it's very family friendly, I think, as a, as a specialty. Um, and, and yet not many people um, seem to apply for the, the training posts in it compared to um, other specialties. And it's always been a bit of a mystery. And the problem is that with, like with any small or relatively small specialty, you find that um, the, the age distribution across the specialty is not even. So you suddenly get a peak of people who are about to retire and bingo, they're gone. And then you've got a bit of a gap uh, as you try and fill all these gaps. Um, and then you have another peak of people who come up to retirement and then they go. Um, in a huge specialty like anaesthetics, that doesn't matter. These peaks even themselves out. Um, in a small specialty like rehab medicine, it does matter. I don't think there's ever been any more than about 20 consultants in rehab medicine in Scotland. Um, and I know for a fact that some of them, including myself, of course, uh, have now retired. And I think there will be some who have been appointed as consultants since then. But I don't think that some of the units will be um, well staffed, if I can put it that way. And I don't think that there's too many who will, consultants who will have a lot of time to work with community teams, which is a real shame, because I think that's where the long term follow up and, and, and a great deal of um, useful collaboration um, could take place. Thank you so much, Douglas. You've shared that's all right. so much valuable information. It's been really, really enjoyable. I hope you've enjoyed it. I have. I have. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, to be perfectly honest, because I've never contributed to a podcast before. You know, Douglas, I do hope that maybe you would be willing to come back again because there's still some things on our list and, you know, we, yeah. we may have other things that come up and it would be lovely to have you back again. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. And that would be you, brilliant, yeah. yeah. And if you think of anything else that our listeners, as I say, it's a very broad uh, audience base and yes. we're international as well as I'm sure it's not. <laughs> um, if you think of anything else that might be of interest to our listeners in terms of, you know, people we could have on as guests, yeah. family members, our community yeah. organisations, yeah. you know, please, please feel free to drop me an email and I'll, yeah. I'll make contact with them. Sure. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are of the individual and should not be considered professional advice. If you have a brain injury, suspect you have a brain injury, or think someone you know has a brain injury, please seek dedicated professional advice.